Hi guys, it's been a week and I am back with another instalment of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I hope that you're enjoying the Sean Flynn series and I hope that you've had a good week. Um, It will be about a week between episodes at the moment um, for this series, obviously. Uh, And I think next week, part three will be the final one. This story, just when you think that you've read everything there is or kind of understand it, I've noticed that it that it throws a wrench. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. And there's a whole other part that you randomly find, which may or may not have something to do with Sean Flynn and Dana Stone's disappearances, but it's just very strange, a lot of the things that were going on. So, you know, I've realised that not only did Sean and Dana go missing on the day that they did where they did, but three other journalists did as well. And that was only mentioned in a tiny little publication um, by an organisation called POW.org, I believe. Uh, They keep track of American POW. So that's thrown a wrench in the works and I'm still going with that. Um, But for this part, we're going to talk about how Sean Flynn ended up in Vietnam and then Cambodia, Um, but also the other person in this story that people often kind of forget about, Dana Stone, who also went missing uh, in 1970 in Cambodia. And hopefully this part of the series will paint a picture of a little bit about who Dana was as well, because information on him is kind of few and far between. Where we left off, we discussed Sean Flynn's famous father, Errol Flynn, Sean's upbringing and his education, and his journey towards ultimately becoming a photojournalist after a bit of a lacklustre film career that I think he was really only doing it for the sake of the money. That's the vibe that I have got, not that he said or anything like that, but he would just kind of flip between doing a film in France and then he'd be back in a war zone. So to begin this episode, I'm going to discuss the second person in this story, Dana Stone, who is in no mean, in no way less important than Sean Flynn, albeit because he didn't have a famous dad or upbringing or famous mum. People don't talk about him as much. That's pretty much the sad reality of it. But he was an impressive man in his own right who would also vanish on that lonely highway in Cambodia in 1970. For me, I think Dana is just as impressive as Sean Flynn, if not more. Um, I think he had a few more years under his belt in terms of war experience, war photography experience, but maybe also life experience as well. And I think it's important to discuss Dana and how he ended up working in Southeast Asia and disappearing as well. Firstly, I want to shout out a brilliant resource that I found on the internet um, in an internet that is very scarce on Dana Stone info. A writer called, and I'm going to go with Zarlene because I've looked it up. Apparently, there's a version in about six different languages. It can be Italian, Serbian, Swedish, so don't ever go at me. There's the Chinese one. Um, it's Z-A-L-I-N, Grant. So 
the internet told me it was Zeline. So I'm just going to go with that. Um, but he wrote a book called War Tales. He um, was basically an army officer who was specialised in intelligence during the Vietnam War. And he wrote a book, as I said, called War Tales. And within that book is a chapter called Dana and Louise, a war couple. Luckily, there is an excerpt on the publisher's website. So it is legitimate and legally allowed to be there. Um, just that chapter. So th thank you so much for putting that up. Otherwise, we wouldn't really have many insider details about what kind of person Dana Stone was. What makes Zeline Grant an expert on this is Zeline Grant volunteered in Vietnam. He was an army officer, as I said, worked in intelligence. He was also a former journalist for Time. Um, he's written numerous books on the Vietnam War. And he also investigated Sean and Dana's disappearances on the ground in Cambodia after they happened. At this point, he was a journalist back in Washington, D.C., but he was basically asked by Time magazine and CBS, who were the two organisations that Sean and Dana were freelance to at the time, to go back over there to go to Cambodia and to investigate due to his own contacts on the ground as well as his army intelligence training. On top of that, he also knew Dana Stone and his wife Louise, uh, which is very helpful, but we aren't there yet. Dana Stone was born on April 18th, 1939 um, in North Pomfret, which is in the state of Vermont in the United States. He was, according to most sources, three years older than Sean. Um, we don't have a couple of them say one year, a couple of them say another, <clears throat> Sean was 28 when he vanished and according to most sources, he um, Dana was either 31 or 32. Accord he had, you know, his job as a correspondent with Sean in common, the fact that they were also friends. Um, but other than that, his life had been worlds away from Hollywood, um, the Hollywood that Sean Flynn had kind of grown up in. He disappeared just 12 days short of what I think would have been his 32nd birthday. So Dana Stone had a younger brother, John, who after Dana Stone's disappearance in 1970, John would then join the US Army in 1971 Um basically fresh out of high school because all he wanted to do was to get over to Southeast Asia and to uncover what had happened to his older brother who he looked up to so much. Unfortunately, he did not get those answers. No one got those answers despite so many people looking for them. It's really heartening to see how many friends the two of them had and how many are still looking for them, in particular a fellow colleague called Tim Page and one called Carl Robinson. I'll get into both of them later. But basically, John Stone would end up serving as a medic in the National Guard. But sadly, he was on a tour in Afghanistan in 2006 at the age of 52 when he was killed in friendly fire um, in Afghanistan. And so both of the Stone siblings, decades apart, um, would be killed in war zones. I don't have a play-by-play -play of Dana's early life. I do know that he went to a boarding school in Vermont, which is... Similar because Sean went to a boarding school up that way as well, but they did not know each other until crossing paths in Vietnam. After leaving school, he did all manner of jobs. He joined the US Navy. He prospected for gold in California. He was a lumberjack. He was a postman. But this was all true 
not like um, Errol Flynn would make up stories about his life. According to the POWnetwork.org website, Dana had been in the US Navy during the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Marines there had given him the nickname Mini Grunt. Now, to describe Dana, if you're listening on Spotify, the episode picture for this this instalment, part two, on the left is Sean, kind of sitting back, leaning on his arms. And the other one with a camera around his neck is Dana. Now, to describe Dana, you would just say the complete opposite of Sean Flynn in every single way. Dana is a tiny guy or was a tiny guy. Um, the photos show just how tiny he is. And if the camera puts on 10 pounds, then he was tiny. That's probably why they called him Mini Grunt. Nowhere does it say a height for him, but I would have to say from pictures I've seen 5'4" or 5'5", five, five. he's drowning in his war gear um, and he's kind of weird, you know, the military kind of fatigues that he's wearing. Honestly, the picture that I put up as the picture for this week's episode, um, he looks like a child. He's, he's tiny. Um, he wore big kind of black-rimmed glasses and he's quite um, nerdy looking, you know, he was apparently extremely gregarious despite how his appearance. Um, he was kind of pint-sized, but he had a massive personality. But then you compare it to Sean Flynn, he's like big, built, at least he was until he got to uh, a war zone um, and he seemed to have lost a lot of weight. Um, but Sean was either six foot four or six foot five, big dude, um, built. They were like chalk and cheese. At the time of his disappearance, Dana Stone was happily married to his wife, Louise Smizer, who is sometimes referred to as Louise Stone, so I'll just call her that to make it easier. According to um, Zellen Grant, he actually carried Louise's hair braided around his neck, fashioned like into a necklace, um, and he was wearing this when he vanished. Now, Dana was well-travelled and an adventurous spirit, much like Sean Flynn was. And Zelene Grant, in the excerpt from his book, describes the two, um, Louise and Dana, and their relationship in a really great way because they were such polar opposites. Quote, No one should try to figure out what makes a couple's relationship work, but if anybody wanted to give Dana and Louise a shot, theirs made for a Rubik's Cube of psychology. He was one of the most gregarious and upbeat guys I'd ever known, a devoted practical joker who couldn't sit still for five minutes. She could read for hours without moving. His major was world curiosity. Hers was art history. Both of them liked to live close to the ground, frugally, without pretension. The more hard physical hardship, the better. And maybe that was the answer. Yet even that seemed a bit odd since she was the daughter of a Mercedes-driving Kentucky doctor and he had attended boarding schools in Vermont. Whatever the ingredients that went into it, their relationship worked. Dana and Louise were inseparable. She took the gold nugget a miner had given her during Dana's prospecting days in California and turned it into a wedding band, unquote. Dana and Louise went everywhere together and it seems that no matter where he was stationed for work as a freelance photojournalist, particularly in Southeast Asia during this very pivotal time in their history, especially Vietnam, Louise seemed to go with him. 
His first trip to Vietnam was in 1965 via Hong Kong, where he fatefully bought himself his first camera, which was a Nikon camera, which is also the first brand of camera I ever bought as well. He had this kind of spurred on a love for photography and documenting the world around him, and that love only grew from there. Once they arrived into Saigon in the mid-1960s as the Vietnam War raged in the post-Kennedy era, um, they arrived into Saigon, which is the capital of South Vietnam. Um, it's now called Ho Chi Minh City. It's a city, um, massive, buzzing, uh, so busy. <laughs> it's insane. You can barely cross the road with all the motorbikes. Really daunting, bright, electric. I loved Ho Chi Minh City when I went there. Um, but when he arrived with Louise into into what they then called Saigon, so I will call it Saigon for these episodes um, because it was once, you know, French, um, he very quickly met a French war reporter called Henri Oué. Now, Henri showed Dana how to probably use this camera that Dana had bought and how to load film into it and how to use it to his benefit. Looking up Henri is actually really interesting and impressive in his own right. He actually died less than a year after Dana and Sean would vanish, but he was shot down um, in a chopper while travelling over a North Vietnamese area of South Vietnam with other photojournalists um, and they were all killed, which is really sad. Through Henri, Dana would become friendly with some other war photographers um, and this group would form a group that for about four or five years would be inseparable um, and would even share apartments together and things. They were all American, British, French, Dutch, um, reporting there on the Vietnam War. And by this stage, the war was almost midway through its 20-year span in 1965. At this stage, as I said, JFK had been killed in 1963 and... In his absence, because he was trying to hold back a little bit um, from getting involved there. If you haven't listened to my John and Mushfiq episode in Vietnam, I talk about the Vietnam War. Um, you'll need to check that out. But LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, um, was very keen on going into Vietnam and was pushing head on into Vietnam. The American ground war kicked off at the beginning of 1965. They sent in at the time 3,500 Marines and they landed in Da Nang, which is a very popular place now, very touristy. It's in South Vietnam. Um, but within a year, there was over 200,000 troops sent, many of them stationed in Da Nang or Saigon. This was high time for war journalists who wanted to make a name for themselves um, and to get contracted by big organisations like the AP, um, the UPI, uh, Reuters, uh, Time magazine, CBS, all the big ones. And through this, Dana was picked up as a freelancer for UPI, which is United Press International, an international American news organisation and agency. And from then, he was picked up by the Associated Press to work for them. He met the fellow journalists stationed in Da Nang and Saigon, and Sean Flynn was one of them by this stage. More on how Sean Flynn ended up there shortly. 
Another one who has been very vocal in the decades since the two went missing in looking for them was a journalist who's British. His name's Tim Page. Now, he's a bit of a character. He, I will quote him later, you can watch him on YouTube, but it's not worth me putting any clips in here because it doesn't provide any value as most of the comments on the things say. He's gone back numerous times over the decades looking for them. He's like an authority on not only was he an award-winning photojournalist at the time, he knew them so well, um, but he's done his own investigations using his own contacts for decades. Um, and we will talk when I wrap up this on part three, um, what he believes happened to Sean Flynn and Dana Stone could be probably what happened. Another famous photojournalist there in this group was a young man called John Steinbeck Jr., who, just like Sean Flynn, also had a famous father. Now, John Steinbeck Jr. was the son of John Steinbeck Sr., who I think everyone probably was forced to read Of Mice and Men in school, at least we were. I love Of Mice and Men, um, but it seems that people think it's boring and stuff like that. I love the movie. Um, I had a friend of mine who called me Lenny because I used to break things all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's all I can think of. Uh, but, you know, he was also the son of a famous man and was trying to forge his own path. He... A bunch of these different guys would go on to write books on these. A lot of them were out of print, so you just can't get a hold of them. But this, these photojournalists were the real deal um, at a time when I'm not saying everyone was there for the right reasons. And I do think a lot of them were subjective as opposed to being objective, which is pretty much rule one of being a journalist or a photojournalist. Um, John Steinbeck Jr. in particular held pretty strong views in terms of pacifism and things like that. And I personally don't think that's ideal for, for journalists, but you, these people are human and once you're there for such a long time, for years, you can't expect them not to have their own biases. We all have them, but it's as long as it's not influencing the work that you're putting out there. Um, but some of these guys' pictures and stuff were amazing, um, although some of their pictures are very as would be expected because they're freelancing for American organisations and Western organisations. A lot of them are... Um, probably a little bit warped in terms of what you're seeing in the pictures versus what was really happening. Um, and if you would like to see some pictures not taken by US photojournalists uh, or just taken by the Vietnamese and things like that, of the other side of that, I highly recommend the War Museum in Ho Chi Minh City. It's really, really confronting, um, but I think it's important to be able to see both sides. So, Basically, Dana Stone soon became became a combat photographer, which basically meant that he would actively take photos on like battlefields uh, in Vietnam. He would be put on missions with the Green Berets and other organisations, um, including mercenary groups. Now, 
Vietnam was the first televised war um, and we're so used to it now. It's it's hard to believe that wars ever happened without us being able to watch them 24-7. I mean, you can literally watch like live streams of cities all over the world, but it was new. It was like people went home from work in America or Australia or the UK um, and watched the war unfold on TV and Sean Flynn and Dana Stone and you know, Tim Page and people like that, John Steinbeck played, you know, a key role in that. But it was also the onset of, I guess, what is now called, or since the Afghan war, it's now called embedded journalism, which has, it can be good and it can be bad. Um, So basically, embedded journalism and I'm hearkening back to my days like doing units of international journalism at uni but it's where reporters get put with troops um, and they travel around with them and a lot of what has come out of that especially in um, Afghanistan and things like that is stuff that the troops they almost forget that this reporter is with them then the reporter eventually leaves after weeks or months and goes and writes you know scathing opinion pieces on what they heard and what was said and things like that. And I know that's happened like quite a lot in Afghanistan. Um, and if you're looking for a show that's based on the memories of all, you know, diaries or coverage in Afghanistan, um, the show Generation Kill was based on embedded journalists who kind of travelled around with the first Marines uh, in Afghanistan So, and it's well worth watching, Um, but Dana Stone would do this. Now, Dana had a photo at one point that was used as a Time magazine cover, which is really striking. It's, uh, I can't really explain it. It's kind of like someone covering themselves um, from shelling and it's, it's really, really impressive. In 1969, Dana and his wife Louise left Vietnam they planned on leaving for good. People would tire of it. Um, it's very hot in that part of the world. And when it's not a war zone, sometimes that can be quite confronting the things that you kind of see. It's very, very poor. But we're talking about that times like 100 in 1969 plus it's a war zone. Um, and there's a lot of psychological stuff that goes along with that and physical stuff, it, it changes you. So Dana and Louise left Vietnam. Um, they went to India. They bought a VW camper, tr- very trendy now. And they drove from India all the way to Lapland, which is in the very north of Sweden. And here for a time, they lived and Dana worked as a lumberjack. On the way on this massive trip, which would have been amazing, they ran into Zaleen Grant and his then-girlfriend, who they knew, and they regularly kept in touch sending letters to each other. Zaleen says in his book that when he ran into Dana and Louise, basically both couples agreed that they were done with Southeast Asia, done with Vietnam and done with the war coverage and that they would not be going back Zaleen kept to this. He would ultimately end up back in the um, United States. 
when he got back from this particular trip. Um, but when he did get back from that trip, he would find a letter from the now vanished Dana at this point waiting for him that said that he had in fact returned to Vietnam. The pull of, you know, the high, I guess they talk about, of war and war coverage. It's um, like intoxicating for a lot of people. And you wonder if Dana had that, whether it was just a desire to cover what was really happening or a, a true love of journalism or whether, you know, some people do this because they really get off on, on the fear and that you're con- living on the edge every single day. But the letter read as follows. Louise is here now sitting with me at the 15th aerial port in Da Nang waiting for flight 640 to Saigon, already two fucking hours late and it's raining. So there are NVA troops and trucks in the Ashau again. But the US doesn't want to go in and the GVN won't. Ben Het had seven arc lights around it two days ago and it looks as if the fourth will move east out of the highlands to avoid getting involved. More and more Vietnamese talking about how it would be to live under communism, unquote. So Dana and Louise returned um, to this part of the world in early 1970. Um, Dana at this point had picked up a freelancing role for CBS News back in the United States. And in March, Dana was fatefully called back to Saigon. By now, he was kind of in hot demand. He was an esteemed combat cameraman, as they put it. And he was needed in Saigon to work on a documentary that they were making for CBS there, which took about five days. From there, CBS sent Dana to the capital of Cambodia, which is next door to Vietnam. Um, a lot of people, when they're going like overland, they and they do Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, they all share borders. Um, and I went from, I got the bus from Ho Chi Minh City to Vietnam, um, to Phnom Penh, the capital um, of Cambodia. Some people say Phnom Penh and like hit the P. Some people say Nom Penh. It really just depends. Um, but he arrived into Phnom Penh, Cambodia, the capital on March 28th, 1970. And basically he was sent there to cover an unfolding event that we will get into more on part three and that's commonly referred to as the Cambodian coup. Now in short as I said we'll get into it more on part three the Cambodian coup was the overthrowing of the prince of um, Cambodia Prince Sihanouk that's always how people said it to me in Cambodia um, and basically signaled the start of the very famous or notorious Khmer Rouge regime that would lead to the loss of millions of lives from 1975 to 1980. Now, I will say I, in part three, I'm not going to talk too much about Pol Pot and his regime. I wanted to, but this was just getting too out of control with information. Um, and by this stage, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge were not in power yet when Sean and Dana went missing. What was happening was basically a transfer of power um, away from the prince in Cambodia. Cambodia had long turned a blind eye to the Viet Cong basically squatting and um, within their own borders, uh, but this signalled the start of a lot of issues um, in Cambodia and 
I just want to do another episode solely on Pol Pod. It's just not worth it to do it for this because I wouldn't do it justice. But in short, when he came in, um, he implemented a him and his Khmer Rouge party implemented essentially what Idi Amin did, um, but slightly different. Um, but it's called Year Zero and it's chilling. Um, and it was basically, you know, led to wanting to wipe out his entire population. Um, it's brutal. It's You see it every day in Cambodia when you're there, the aftermath of it. It's only been... 40 years, um, Pol Pot unfortunately never faced justice, but this country is still getting on its feet. Um, but in 1970, it was five years uh, before basically the Khmer Rouge regime and Dana and Sean were both going to Cambodia because they got wind that this Cambodian coup was happening um, and they thought that that would be, you know, relevant. Now, Sean Flynn was also in Phnom Penh at the time. After Sean's failed film career, not really a failure so much as he, I don't think his heart was in it. His trip to Africa working as a safari guide and a game warden and flitting between careers, he had <clears throat> basically done what Dana Stone had done and built a war photography career of his own. And I honestly think that he got it not on his name. I, I generally think that he got it on talent. Now, I will say there are a number of um, very bad quality recordings of Sean Flynn calling in stories where you can hear his voice. There's no point me putting them on here because you already can't, I could barely understand it. Um, they are on YouTube and I've added them or embedded them on unknownpassagepodcast.com. Go to episodes and then go to the most recent one, Sean Flynn and Dana Stone. I've added it. all of these resources. I keep updating to that page. So you can watch that and kind of hear him reporting back. But I just couldn't add it to this because I could barely make it out. It was um, one of them was from 1969 and there's like heaps of background noise. It's crackling. It just wasn't worth it. On part three, I will talk about the fact that unbelievably, despite the fact that there's no footage of Sean other than a couple of him singing on YouTube when he kind of had like a fleeting singing career and other um like a couple of those there's no other recordings of his voice or him in action so to speak but then crazily in the last minutes of his life we have footage of him um we don't know unfortunately he's not talking in it because it's a french news agency but they're doing the voiceover for the news um, in French, but it's Sean being interviewed by a French journalist and explaining something that's happening that he is witnessing up the road. And then, spoiler alert, he, he and Dana would go up the road to investigate and they would go missing. But we'll talk about that on part three. So while Dana Stone built his career fresh out of the Navy and climbed the ranks of photojournalists stationed in Southeast Asia, Sean Flynn arrived into a very complex situation in Vietnam in January of 1966. Sean fell into freelancing in much the same way as Dana and he lasted years longer than his father's one-week-long sojourn to Spain that we talked about in part one that had happened three decades before. It seemed that 
for Errol, it was kind of a photo op, but for Sean, it was something else. He was very quickly picked up as a stringer for Western publications, smaller ones like Time Life initially and some in Paris where he actually had his apartment. That would be his base for when he would occasionally leave um, and go home and I believe that's because his mum, Lily Demeter, lived in Paris. Um, and then soon, sooner, you know, pretty <laughs> pretty soon, uh, larger, more esteemed publications like the Associated Press and Time and UPI would pick him up for work as well. Like Dana, his photos of the ongoing conflict between the North and the South and the realities of war were beamed across the world. He and Dana and the select number of Western photographers I talked about did whatever it took to get the shot. And a number of them became quite famous for just brazenly entering combat zones in order to do that. And within three months of arriving into Vietnam, Sean really badly injured his knee doing this. The harsh reality of war versus the fantasy, I guess, for people who aren't in it, must have hit Sean like a ton of bricks. As I said, this was the first televised war and photographers were often embedded with militaries uh, for periods of time, much like Dana was with the Green Berets and Sean would be embedded with the Green Berets for a period in April of 1966. Basically, it was a bit of a free-for-all. Sean was given a rifle um, and they were on patrol um, in the jungles of South Vietnam and they were ambushed by the Viet Cong. Essentially, the bad guys in the war, a communist group operating across Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. Um, in short, the end game being to overcome the South on behalf of the North um, and to reunify Vietnam. And spoiler alert, they won. The group essentially were ambushed and had to shoot their way out. And Sean would later write, quote, I thought not only me, but all of us were gassed. Sorry. <clears throat> my eyes are bad. I thought not only me, but all of us were greased, unquote. He then left Vietnam for a brief return to the silver screen in a low-budget movie um, in Europe and Singapore, I believe. But the call of Vietnam soon called him back as the war raged. And honestly, he probably had a bit of FOMO, fear of missing out, because he'd met all of these, you know, guys. He was sharing apartments with them. He probably saw that they were getting these amazing shots or saw their work being published, and I'm sure that that probably played a role in it. By November that year, he was back on the ground in Vietnam, and he actually was with some Australian troops because we were involved uh, quite heavily in Vietnam uh, near Vung Tau, which is actually, it's like an inner city. It's, it's like an hour from Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, it's kind of like marketed these days as a beach escape for people who don't have time to go too far from Saigon. It's like a weekend away kind of thing. Um, but I've heard it's not that great. If you've been to Vung Tau and it was all right, let me know. But he was photographing Australian troops near Vung Tau and he was taking photos and he actually saw a landmine that no one else had noticed um, that would have killed them all and pointed it out and he was credited with saving the entire Australian platoon. Now, I thought that was kind of like random that no one else saw it. Um, listener Nate, this is kind of his jam, is really interested in Vietnam and things like that. He was on the Annecy Murders episode. He um, 
he told me that Australians were considered like, they call them the ghosts of the jungle. They were considered like the best recon guys in the Vietnam War. Stories like that make me question that. (laughs) So the following year, 1967, Sean was sent to Jordan uh, to cover the Six-Day War, officially known as the Arab-Israeli War. And I'm not going to talk about that because we're talking about Vietnam and Cambodia and it's already getting confusing. He then returned to Vietnam in 1968 um, and he was hired by CBS News as a cameraman. I'd really like to know more about Sean's personal life during this time. He seemed like a really interesting guy who had kind of really random experiences. At one point, he was like going out with a Balinese princess. Um, And the best kind of light I could find that shed anything on Sean Flynn as a person outside of work was a really great article in the Financial Review by a colleague of Sean's called Carl Robinson. And the article is called Out of their father's shadows in Vietnam with Flynn and Steinbeck and it was published just a couple of years ago. So Carl Robinson was a young and idealistic journalist who had also found himself in South Vietnam in the mid-1960s and he became friends with John Steinbeck Jr. through you know, the American groups, you know, there was a lot of expats at the time and opportunists, I will say that. He's a really great descriptive writer and I really want to read to you um, some of his recollections of meeting Sean and how those first impressions didn't last um, in this instance um, in a good way. So it's quite lengthy um, and I'll come back to it again later, but here we go. One evening in late 1968, John invited me to meet some other people. Parking our motorbikes on Tudor Street across from the familiar Brodard, he led me down a darkened passageway in a nondescript row of townhouses with shops on the ground floor and residences above. Holding on to the rustic handrail, we walked up the wide curve of wooden stairs to the first floor and into a room crowded with Westerners. Loud music played. I had my Doors and Jose Feliciano albums back home, but here was unfamiliar Jimi Hendrix belting out all along the watchtower at full volume. A strobe light flashed off psychedelic posters. I was introduced to British photographer Tim Page, who worked for Time Life. He was sitting on a mat rolling one of his classic four-sheet super joints, which he called Tamparello, a combination of Cigarello and Tampax, the popular feminine tampon. I met Mike Herr, later author of the bestseller Dispatches, and a handful of other more established photographers, cameramen and correspondents. Over at the quieter end of the room by a large open window, I saw someone about my age sitting quietly and alone in a high-backed rattan chair, observing the scene. Tall and handsome with a thin moustache, he was Sean Flynn, son of the actor Errol Flynn. I wanted over to introduce myself. He offered no handshake and didn't say a thing. I made small talk about his good friend Dana Stone, a Danang-based photographer who'd switched over to AP from UPI a few months before. Still nothing. What a snob, I thought, and wandered on home to my girlfriend, Kim Dung, leaving the other famous son behind. By November 1968, I was due for an R&R break, 
and with Prince Norodom Sihanouk next door in Cambodia temporarily lifting his ban on foreign journalists for a film festival of mostly his own works, I headed over for a rare look around. I loved Cambodia from the moment I arrived. Barely a couple of hundred kilometres west of Saigon, Phnom Penh reminded me of South Vietnam from nearly five years before. Peaceful, French-speaking, with great restaurants and wide, tree-lined boulevards. After a couple of days, we arrived at spectacular Angkor Wat in Cambodia's northwest and found it quiet and peaceful with no other tourists. We first stayed at the Auberge de Temple, specially built for the making of the film Lord Jim a few years before. But it was very quiet and after a couple of days exploring the temples, we shifted to nearby Siem Reap. Walking into an open-air Chinese restaurant for dinner, I saw Sean Flynn sitting alone. We shook hands. He'd been around for a few days exploring on a rented bicycle. He pulled out his US Army compass and marvelled at his discoveries. Every one of these temple complexes is perfectly laid out on an east-west and north-south axis, he marvelled. We smoked a joint, relaxed and started talking. We found that we had a lot in common. We were both fluent French speakers, lifelong expatriates and comfortable drifting between different cultures as well as being constantly curious and well-read. Sean had spent time in Africa and wore an elephant hair bracelet. The next day I invited Sean to join us for a five-hour journey back to Phnom Penh. I soon realised that this guy sure had his shit together. He had some top-notch camera gear, plenty of dope and a portable cassette recorder. With his soundtrack, we grooved on the lush countryside with its distinct sugar palms, bright green rice paddies and wooden homes on stilts, chatting amiably. Unquote. After that, he talks about how they went to an opium den and like he got really fucked up, but then they became really good friends. But I just loved that description because it reminded me of why I love Cambodia. And honestly, it sounds exactly like 10 years ago when I was there um, because Pol Pot decimated it and then they had to start all over again. Um, but yeah, I just, it's the one place I think Siem Reap, which is where I lived, where it's famous for having Angkor Wat, the temple's complex there. Um <clears throat> It's the one place I probably, you know, me and probably you, many of you listening, uh, 40 years later, I walked, you know, probably where Sean Flynn did and that's the closest that, you know, you'll ever come. Back in Saigon, Carl regularly visited Sean by this point, realising that his first impressions of this aloof jerk weren't right and I think I think Sean just kind of sat back and evaluated people he didn't immediately trust them which is a really good skill to have um but Sean was sharing an apartment with Tim Page and two other photojournalists Sean and Carl would go on a motorbike trip through Laos but then things would start to change um, and Tim Page, who I've talked about earlier, who I hope is still alive. There was a couple of interviews from a few years ago. He's got a mouthful of gravel voice, as one person described it. Um, it's years of drinking and cigarettes. Um, he's very flamboyant British guy. Um, I'd love 
to read his book, unfortunately. I couldn't get a hold of it. But Tim Page, who was one of the roommates, Sean Flynn's best mate, and someone who still to this day is looking for Sean and Dana, he told the Wall Street Journal in 2014 about the last time that he saw Sean um, in the early 1970. He wrote or said, Yet, as the war progressed, more and more of his colleagues died or were wounded. The last time Mr Page saw Flynn was from a hospital bed where he was recovering from a landmine blast that nearly killed him, requiring a plastic skull plate to repair the damage. Flynn was in Laos when he heard I had been blown up. He caught the next plane to Saigon and came to the hospital, says Mr Page, smiling at the memory. I had just started to see again after being blinded and he was standing there in a white Pakistani linen wedding shirt, unquote. And this is where it kind of crosses over with Carl Robinson's piece for the Financial Review because Carl in that piece does discuss that day. Um, And he says that when they were on the way to see Tim at the hospital, Sean was very quiet, um, and kind of contemplative. He'd become more and more, I think, worried about meeting his end in this part of the world because a lot of them had been blown up. Tim Page basically had part half of his head blown off. It's crazy. Um, I think he was starting to realise the reality of it and was wondering whether or not he wanted to be there. But when they got to the hospital, he kind of lifted his spirits and was cracking jokes with Tim Page and things like that. Tim and Sean were best mates. Ultimately, Tim would be medevaced to Japan for life-saving treatment and he would never see his friend Sean ever again. By this stage, their friendship group was either all injured um, or had left and it was just Carl and Sean. Um, Carl wrote for the Financial Review, quote, He was clearly shaken and several days later presented me with a handwritten note beginning with the word unwillingly. Felicity here, I just want to clarify, it's all lowercase, but the will part is in capital letters. Back to it. And including instructions for if he was wounded or killed. If me so bad, medivaced immediately. And if Kool-Aid, celestially unredeemable, unquote. That's what he wrote. Um, so either he smoked a shitload of opium and his brain was cactus by this stage or he was just kidding around. But it seems like it was something that he took really seriously because within this he actually gave instructions like on what to do with his belongings and things like that. Carl writes, quote, he also noted addresses and to whom I should send his belongings. Sadly, Sean said nothing about what to do if he just disappeared. We tried slipping back to our old routine of a morning coffee, a lunchtime smoke and something after work, the odd meal over at our place. Often there was little or nothing spoken between us, just company. Once he said mournfully, someday we're going to travel a long way to see each other again, unquote. Sean sounds like he talks in riddles a little bit. So basically Carl Robinson was getting married to his girlfriend. So Sean waited around until Carl's wedding was done and then he left for Indonesia. Bali was kind of this mystical place that no one knew of at this point. Carl writes about how none of them knew where it was or had heard of it. And Sean said that he was going to move to Bali. He told them or told Carl that he was done with Vietnam and he would not be returning 
We heard this before with Dana as well. And it seems that around the same time, Sean and Dana were both making this vow not to return to Vietnam and Southeast Asia and they were done with it and done with that life, done with the heat, done with the intensity of the whole situation. It's oppressive heat there all the time. (laughs) Like today, I always have like uh, Cambodian temperature where I used to live like on my phone and it's like completely like 100% humidity and like 37 degrees like every day. So he then got to Bali and he would write letters to Carl and he said that he had a new girlfriend and she was a Balinese princess. Now this was probably true um, unlike his dad who clearly just made up stuff. I think Sean genuinely fell into these weird situations that no one could believe but his friends did believe them. So in early um, in March of 1970, Sean suddenly said that he had to come back to Saigon. Basically, their apartment, they were packing it up, um, leasing it out to someone else, and he wanted to pack up the remainder of his belongings and ship them back um, to Paris, the ones that he wasn't taking with him back to Indonesia, where he planned to return to. Um, again, this apartment in Paris that he had for years, it would kind of service like where he would go if he needed to get away. It's because his mum, Lily, was French. Now, I actually read that Lily, because... Sean was her only child and she would spend the rest of her life um, over, over. I think she, she lived 24 years after Sean disappeared. She looked for him that entire time and spent a fortune. Um, I read that like his apartment was left as it was for that whole time. She just paid to have it like it was just like stood still in time. Um, with all of his belongings. And I read that from some guy online who ended up um, getting Sean, one of Sean's cameras in his um, kind of, he's he's like a camera enthusiast. And uh, it was one of Sean's cameras. And through that, he spoke to Lily Demeter. And um, it was actually like really interesting, just kind of talking about all the different places that this camera had been and how lucky it was that it wasn't with Sean on the day that he disappeared um, because it was so important to him. So basically he was packing up all this stuff, then he was going back to Indonesia. So Carl dropped around the next day to wish Sean well in Indonesia and to say good luck with with your new Balinese princess woman um, and he was told by another roommate who was also moving out that Sean had left for Cambodia and Carl was like, what? I thought he was done with this. Time magazine had asked Sean to go to Cambodia for an assignment on the what was happening on the border, basically where I talked about the Cambodian coup and I'll talk about it more on part three. But at this stage in 1970, in the March of 1970, early April, the North Vietnamese were attempting to advance into Cambodia, which had long declared itself neutral. And while the Prince of Cambodia, um, before the coup that kind of removed him, had been quite kind of patient with them being there, he'd kind of turned a blind eye. Things were dramatically changing. So, Sean had packed up his stuff and headed for the capital, Phnom Penh, and here he was reunited with his old friend from Saigon, Dana Stone. According to Carl Robinson writing for the Financial Review, quote, compared to Vietnam, covering Cambodia was a nightmare. News was hard to get there. Sorry, news was hard to get. 
There were only cursory military briefings and journalists could get no help to move around. The growing press contingent was largely on its own as it tried to report on an extremely fluid situation, unquote. And that's where I'm going to leave it for part two. It's a fair bit shorter than part one, but um, I probably, it probably won't be a full week until the next part, don't worry. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed this instalment, kind of hearing more and more about Dana in particular and how they ended up there. Some of the information I get is quite dry, but it was someone's life and their life and what they did with it kind of matters, Um, especially when uh, (laughs) I was just thinking today, like half the world is like watching this trial of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard where half of the argument is was he pissing on the ground in the hallway why did she shit in the bed oh it was a Yorkshire Terrier that did it and it's like this stuff it's just all so meaningless (laughs) like like what Dana Stone and Sean Flynn were doing I was just thinking, like, imagine being a journalist sent there to Virginia to cover that every day and it's like, what happened today? And it's like, oh, today they argued about, you know, this or some guy was vaping, like, the doorman and everyone was laughing and it's like, it's such a joke. Like, it's turned into such a circus. And then you had, like, proper journalists at the time or, you know, the number of people that idolise influencers or the Kardashians And I'm not telling you who to look up to. Look up to who you want to look up to. Like, if you want to look up to Kim because she's made a shitload of money, that's, you know, do it. Um, She's kind of formed her own empire no matter how that started out and stuff. And they're obviously very, like, savvy with money and stuff like that. But, yeah, just be cautious of the people that you look up to, that's all. Um... And that's why I like stories. I would rather talk about Dana Stone and Sean Flynn for almost an hour or three hours or five hours um, than talk about, you know, how the Kardashians got to where they got to. That's all I'm saying. Um, I'm kind of sick of it. I'm over it. I'm too old. I'm I'm just too old and bitter and jaded and that's okay. Uh, Ten years ago it was a different story. But... Times of change. Um, so, yeah, I hope that you are having a good week. Um, I will be back with part three. As I said, part three will focus on Cambodia, what was happening at the time, a bit about Cambodia now, a very brief history of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot because I don't want to get into that too much. As I said, it's just too much. Um, and it doesn't tie into this episode really. I mean, it, it kind of does in the sense that if you go going to look for Sean and Dana when they go missing in 1970, you're pretty much not able to after 1975 um, and then a massive genocide happens um, and what's the likelihood you're going to be able to find two bodies when there's two million bodies? Um, and I'm, I'm also going to talk about all the twists and turns in relation to a couple of random curveballs that were thrown in where NBC News still has articles up saying Sean Flynn, his body was found and Sean and Dana's. Um, that is not true at all. They really should update that 
because it's it's one of the top hits when you search for Sean. Um, I'm going to tell you that story because that's crazy. Total case of mistaken identity, which ties into all this and could have really wasted time um, in regards to looking for Sean and Dana. Um, I'm going to talk about what most people think happened to Sean and Dana, different sightings of them, the events of the day that they went missing and what was happening. And probably the stories of a couple of other people, um, although a couple of other people who went missing at the time because so many journalists went missing <laughs> in 1970 in Cambodia and Vietnam, it's actually the majority of all of the journalists missing worldwide. I think I'll give you the statistics on the next episode. I believe it's around 30 in Southeast Asia that are missing international journalists and most of them went missing around the time that Sean and Dana went missing, if that gives you an idea of how intense things were. Um, so I will be back then and, um, yeah, Enjoy the rest of your week. I'll talk to you then. Oh, visit the website, unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron. Um, join our community on links off the website or search Unknown Passage on the Patreon app. Again, this is a reminder that after May 31st, only those who ple- who are pledging $5 and over a month will receive their episode, um, which I do Patreon location requests. This one for Cambodia is for Patreon Hope. Um, and yeah, if you don't want to become a patron, but you want to give to the podcast, uh, that would be really lovely. The PayPal is unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Leave a rating or review if you like the show and I'll be back next week.